We'll get back to burning bushes, and let me turn on my mic. Exodus chapter number 3, and uh, look again, if you would, in verse number 1. We know that Moses now has uh, left Egypt, and he is on the backside of the desert. He's uh, keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and uh, Jethro was a priest of Midian, verse 1 tells you, and uh, no accident that he led this flock to the backside of the desert uh, by virtue that Moses had been in the limelight of of, uh, the palace of Egypt, and man, he's gone from all the bright lights of that place to the stars and moon being only lights that he'd have at the night. And uh, he came to the mountain of God, verse 1 says, the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Verse 4, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Verse 5, And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Those are the first six verses of Exodus chapter 3. And verse number 4 is down where we stopped the last time we were together. And uh, where it says that God called to him out of the midst of the bush. The word in the Hebrew for bush in verse number 4 uh, means, and the Hebrew word means to prick. Uh, it's uh, implied that it could have had thorns on it. Uh, it is translated in some other places bramble. Uh, which was like what we know of as a, a tumbleweed, a weed that has a base and where the root connects to it, and then it just sort of branches out and grows in big circles and sometimes oblong kind of links and whatever have you. But one of the things about it, once it um, grows to that point, then it dies off. And when it dies off, it's very brittle, and uh, it being in a desert kind of setting, uh, that's what made it so amazing to Moses. He'd probably seen hundreds of them being in the desert for 40 years, and that's where he was. He was 40 years back there. And consequence is that um, what was so unusual about it and why the Bible makes such a big deal about him actually turning to look at it, to investigate it, is because with this one bush catching on fire, it'd be the same thing if you were in Texas and you had in one of those sections where, the, where those tumbleweeds start rolling and they actually block up roads. And they're just all over the place. And they'll block roads when the wind blows like a sandstorm comes through. They blow them and they pile up maybe a story high. And uh, if one of them caught on fire, uh, my goodness, fire would go everywhere. Well, Moses is in a desert place. And here's this arid location in the desert. And all of a sudden, here's a bush and it's burning. But it's not burning up. It's just burning. And that's very unusual because uh, it, one bush on fire, next thing you know, you'd expect a bunch of bushes to be on fire. But that's not, not the case. So I believe by all of that, burning but not burning up, burning but not catching fire to any of the others, I think caused Moses, as I'm sure he was to some degree like all of us would be, be curious about how could this be? How could something this small and this arid, this dry, burn and not burn up, be destroyed? 
Well, whether he realized it or not, I personally believe that the bush is sort of symbolic of, of the nation of Israel. And that is to say that they had been burned up pretty badly. The, the, in fact, it's no surprise that when you read about uh, Egypt, uh, you'll read about the fire or the furnace. In fact, one of the texts we'll read later talks about Egypt as the furnace. It's talking about where they were tested, where they were uh, persecuted, where they t- were, in effect, tortured uh, for the service they were demanded as slaves to render. And the consequence of that is, this is, I think, obviously, the Lord uh, using a burning bush to Moses is no accident. It wouldn't just say, well, what can I do to talk to Moses? And how can I explain to him what this whole thing about me calling him to deliver Israel is all about? How can we explain it? I believe he used the bush to explain that Israel, like this bramble or this prickly bush that was in uh, the desert that was burning but not burning up, I honestly think it's to say it's uh, it was... Um, a useless, lowly bush. It was of no value the way it was. And unless something came out of it could be beneficial, it really was an insignificant thing. But out of the bush, and the bush on fire at that, which would represent the persecution Israel had in Egypt, God speaks. But you know, it's not that odd and unusual. How many times when you've been under the fire of persecution or testing, or just simple suffering that God spoke. There's a song that says, um, I know his voice. When God speaks, I know his voice. And no, it's not talking about visions, and it's not talking about some audible voice that somebody gets in the course of the song. It's talking about when I read his word, and there's something in my life that's not squaring with what the Bible says, I know his voice. I know he's speaking to me. And I know what he said, though it may be written thousands of years ago, it's as fresh as if it came in the morning mail. God speaks to me. And the fact is that sometimes he speaks to us when uh, our hearts are broken. Uh, Sometimes he speaks to us in, in the highlight of a moment. Some really... A celebrated moment of your life and, and right in that God speaks to you maybe as a, an encouragement maybe of a challenge to not forget that in the good times as well as the bad that uh, if you're a believer he's there pulling for you he's working with you and he's dealing with you the point made about it is that in the case with the burning bush representative of Israel God is going to use Israel to deal with a lot of people and in a certain sense He already has used them, in effect, for us. Uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ came came through the Jewish people. And the fact of the matter is, who do you know that went through more persecution, more suffering, more affliction for his faith, that is, for his messages and the sermons he shared and for the truth he believed in and for the walk that he gave before us in the Gospels and all that he did was good and right and righteous, and yet he was still, he was still crucified. Such pain and agony. What a burning bush. But God spoke through all that, and he spoke to us. And so in this particular case, Moses is obviously learning a a tactical lesson that God is going to use him to bring out a people who God himself is going to use because when you read the Old Testament and you uh, even the story of Joseph being down in in, uh, Egypt himself, uh, what an amazing story it is how that God uses uh, uh, the Egyptians to teach a lesson to all of us that even they as an empire 
could not stop God's plan for his Jewish people. How that they, uh, they would have starved to death if God had not planted Joseph in Egypt to be the superintendent of all of their goods. And he was second in command of the Pharaoh, and God used that to protect his people. How in the world could you get away from the fact that God has a plan to work through the Jewish people? And in this particular case, he's telling Moses, and uh, uh, when I speak to you and I'm dealing with you, it's through the people that I will work. Also notice this uh, response, Moses' response to God calling him out of the bush. It's an interesting thing that uh, I think it also tells him when he faces the hard times and the difficult times, when he starts taking this group of people on an 11-day journey that's going to last 40 years, he's going to say to Moses frequently, I'm going to talk to you, and some of the time I'm going to talk to you is going to be some tough going. You need to really listen. You need to really listen, and you need to you need to be sure you're getting my voice and knowing it and understanding what I'm saying to you. Because when you get out there with this group of Israeli slaves, these Jewish slaves rescued out of uh, uh, out of Egypt, they're not going to be easy to work with. It's not going to be a walk in the park. And so you need to listen to me. And when I speak, you need to know my voice and you need to obey it. So much of what you'll read about Moses is his being told by God and taught by God to learn, to listen to him, and learn to obey him because the days ahead are going to require that. I say to you, it's the same with you and me. The days ahead of you, uh, more so than the days behind you, are going to require of you that you get to know the Lord's voice. When you read his word, you need to be more sensitive. You need to be more alert. What do you have to say to me today, Father? You know, what in your word do I need to take and take with me and, and abide by and live by? What is it that it needs to be a practical, functional truth from your word on a day-to-day basis? What is it you want me to know today? And what is We used to call them, in fact, the radio Bible class had the daily bread. Uh, I think it's called and should be called a daily briefing. Yeah, I think it's just like soldiers. You bring them in and say, we've got a daily briefing. Here's what you need to do. When you have a, a city police, when you have a state police, they have in their squadrons and at their quarters, they have a daily briefing. And they brief the men on anything that's on alert, anything that's been brought over the wire that there's concerns or questions about, and they put everybody on alert. I believe we've probably let down our guard, and we don't live every day that way as soldiers of the cross. Uh, we've gotten sort of comfortable and we just think everything will be just fine, don't worry about it. But I think we need to get back to a soldier mentality. That every day you get up and every day that you face the world, you need to be ready as a soldier of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to make sure that you're fully armored. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you need to be sure that you're fully dressed. And if you're not fully dressed, then you may get wounded. You may be harmed and hurt. And you may be offended. You may be discouraged. All of those things have their proper purpose, and sometimes when we don't get dressed, then we get, we get hit, and we get hit hard. I believe the Lord is telling Moses, you need to be fully prepared, because the day will come, you'll need what I'm about to tell you. Now look at verse number 5, and he said, draw not nigh. Interesting thing, here is Moses is to get to know the Lord better, and in verse 5, he actually tells him, uh, don't come any closer. Do not draw nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. 
Now, I, I don't know about you, but a few times, uh, and I mean a few, not a lot, a few times I have been in a place, in a setting, where I thought that the Spirit of the Lord was working, and I believe that um, um, what we would call a setting of revival, where, where there really was a reviving of people's hearts going on. And uh, I believe you could say that it was probably a time where the people in a service sensed the presence of the Lord uh, more than normal or usual. Now, we always would say, you know, where there's two or three gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. And by faith, we claim that and say the Lord is here, the Lord is present. But I think there are sometimes in a, in a corporate assembly where God has worked in the service. He's used the music. He's used the fellowship of the people, the communication they've shared in the service up to that point. And I believe there's a sense in which there's times when you just feel a little bit more like you're in the presence of the Lord. And I've been in a few of those places, and I believe Judy and I were in a few when we had uh, meetings and revivals years and years ago. I believe the Lord visited us in a different kind of way. Not just individually, but I believe there was a sense of the Holy Spirit working corporately in the fellowship hall of our church. And I believe that the people there would say to you, I really sense the Lord's presence in the service. I think we've gotten away from that because we have, uh, we have centered on the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us, and we've somehow sort of been satisfied with that. But I would remind you in the Bible that that's the truth, too, through the epistles. But the Lord still worked in His Spirit in a corporate way. And when He did, He brought conviction to people's hearts and people who came to a service who may have not in, came with any intent to make any kind of decision. They didn't come with, with something already on their mind. They came in and sat down and they honestly weren't too interested in what was happening. But in that service where the Spirit of the Lord was so evident, they came under conviction of their sin. And there have been places where we have uh, seen people who would tell you, I came into this service, I did it because I've promised somebody in the church I'd visit your church, and I've come, and I've sat here, but as I sit here, there's something taking place in my heart, in my life. And in this service, I want to trust Christ as my Savior. I believe the Spirit of the Lord works in a corporate way as well as He does in a personal, private way. And I believe that there is a sense in which the church of Jesus Christ these days have been burnt with so much Pentecostalism. They're afraid of that. They're, they're, they, they would say, is it strange fire? And I would say, not in the case with Moses. You know, not in his case. Moses knew God, but Moses gets to know God in a more personal way, but he also gets to know him in a more corporate way because this God is going to lead Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery of Israel, Egypt and Moses has got to know God in a more personal way to be able to have the power and the strength and the energy and the wisdom to handle this group of people. And I say to you that I think in, in our day and age, it's, it's the kind of thing that um, if you ever have a sense of the Lord's presence, the one thing that always surfaces about it is the people who have that sense will always feel like they're unclean. They just feel like they're not, you know, pure as they need to be. And it's almost always as, as that kind of event takes place, there'll be people who will come to the pastor after a service and say, you know, I just felt so, uh, I just felt like I'm not as pure and holy as I need to be. Well, that's, that's a good signal because the Holy Spirit is holy. And when he works, 
Obviously, he works best in a pure life or a life that needs to be purified, as in a lost person, or in the life of a believer who's beginning to drift, you know, sort of drifting out of the boundaries of what's right and the boundaries of what's holy and what's pure. He works better in bringing those people back to a line in the middle where they can be pure vessels that can be of service to him. Part of this whole thing would set that tone because in this particular case, this is the first time you'll see anything like this where you have an issue of the Lord saying to somebody, draw not near me. You know, you normally think of God when he speaks to say, come closer, come closer. But here he says, don't come in closer. And he doesn't just say it here. He says it some other places. Let me show you a, a couple just for point of reference. Look as for where you are from uh, here in Exodus chapter 3. Look over to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, look down to verse number 10. Exodus 19.10, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon the Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not, that ye go not, that ye go not up into the Mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the Mount shall be surely Put to death. Verse 13, There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be a beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mountain. Then look down to verse 16. In verse 16 it says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpets exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Now just think about that. The fact is they already were aware that the Lord was going to show up and come down. And then they get ready that morning and the voice of the trumpet, that is the sound of the trumpet, was so exceeding loud so that all the people in the camp actually trembled. Then verse 17, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. Verse 18, And the mount Sinai was altogether a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Now, that's important. Verse 19, Moses spake, and God answered him. That's the thing that what the Lord is getting at in Exodus chapter number 3, where he's getting Moses, where the two of them can communicate, where God can say to Moses, I have something to say to you, listen up. And Moses then would be attentive to what God has to say, but recognize that it's holy ground on which God speaks. God doesn't just, um, you know, sort of stumble into some communication. God's very clear. He's a holy God. And the folks who come to him, as in the case with Israel in chapter 19, uh, the Lord told Moses, you need to sanctify them. You need to make sure the people wash 
And the washing in this case was a physical washing that would prepare them for a spiritual meeting. And in this particular case, in chapter 19, down in verse number 20, the Lord came down upon the mount in Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. That's important. Because the whole point of that was to put the boundaries there and say, you know, nobody's to touch it, nobody's to walk on it, nobody's to get even near the boundary, and anything that does will be killed. And then God speaks and says, I want Moses to come up here. What it says is, Moses is my man. He's the man that I put my hand upon and man that I've called and I've set apart. And this is the guy who will communicate the message to you. Look further. So in verse number 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through into the Lord, unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So Moses was to go back down and make sure the people did not break through the line, the boundary line. Verse 22, And let the priest also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Verse 23, The Lord, or Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mount, uh, mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount, and sanctify it. The Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priest and the people people break through come up unto the Lord lest he break forth upon them so Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them in other words the mount was holy ground and uh, no matter how much sanctifying they had done they were not as sanctified as they need to be to go up and meet the Lord like Moses was instructed to and lucky in fact did but that's not the only case you have this story look if you would in Joshua chapter 5 all the way over over the, the book of Joshua Look at chapter number 5 and look at verse number 13. Joshua chapter 5 and look at down to verse number 13. The Bible says in Joshua 5:13, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. One of the things about this holy ground uh, is to understand that what uh, the shoe represented is uh, walking in your daily life. And uh, the shoes were what all of them wore, sandal type thing. And what was indicative of this case is for um, to lay those things aside, the things that you might do normally, um, like you may go into a house, you know, when... Uh, uh, I go into my home, I pull my shoes off at the at the door in the utility room, and, and I walk barefooted to my house, or I have a, a pair of slippers there I slip into, and I walk in my house that way. Now, the thing about that is, is some cases where you go into a place where they don't want you to walk, only with your shoes. Uh, there's a, a couple of religious places up in Indianapolis uh, that have a little sign at the entrance, and it says, please disembark your shoes it just simply means that inside this corridor when you get past this first door there's a whole closet over here 
quite wide and long and deep, and you're supposed to put your shoes in there and remember what you came in with, and then you walk the rest of the way barefooted, or at least without your shoes. And then you get a little further in, and then there's a sign I understand. I haven't seen these. This is what I've been informed about, is that you get in further, and it speaks about it for religious purposes. So their idea is whatever's inside there is evidently respected as a religious kind of atmosphere, and their idea is they don't want you bringing anything from your daily walk into that walk, and they want it to be distinctively different. That's basically what's up with Joshua here in Joshua chapter number 5, and it's also basically what is the case with Moses over in chapter 3 of Exodus. That is, what their lives were on a day-to-day basis it's easy to accumulate uh, things of the world and the things of this life that are not acceptable in the presence of God. And when you do that, uh, when you get yourself into the kind of thing where you pick up uh, maybe uh, language, uh, you may pick up a joke, uh, you may pick up a story, uh, you may pick up an attitude, uh, you may pick up any of those things on a day-to-day operation in whatever life you live and with whatever people you run with or associate with. And what happened is, in a sense, the shoes represent that walk where you accumulated that. So what the idea was is for you to lay that aside when you come to meet the Lord. Now, we don't have time this evening, but uh, next week we'll talk about that, how it translates to us in regard to our worship. Because um, coming into the presence of the Lord uh, is really what worship is all about. And being able to do it and do it right so that uh, the Lord's, uh, our worship of the Lord is acceptable is a matter of taking off your shoes. Now, that's not literal, that's spiritual. These guys took it off literally, and I believe ultimately to teach us a, to teach us a lesson. But um, there is a spiritual lesson to be learned, and the Scriptures set it forth, I think, very clearly. And what we'll do in the weeks to come, Lord willing, we'll cover that and, and talk about it. One thing in our songbook, and a, and a song that uh, has been uh, and is one of the favorite songs, I, I think we uh, have sung it. And I think the last time we used it, we did it with our men. Maybe maybe the men came up to the front and we, we sang this song. But it's, um, it's page 68 in your hymn book, and it's the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. A man by the name of Reginald Heber wrote the song, the words to it. It says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art, and evermore shalt be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. 
And the last verse, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. One of the things in the Christian life that we cannot forget, it is that God is absolutely holy. You and I know nothing of that. We know of nothing that is absolutely holy. We're not absolutely holy. No one you've ever met has been absolutely holy. God himself is the only absolute holy one. And so when you come into his presence, you would expect him to be uh, um, a little bit demanding to say, do you not know who I am and do you not know and understand my holiness and, and therefore you need to be more respectful and I think in our current atmosphere of the Christian faith and our religious services, I think it's easy for us to get a little bit too chummy with God. Almost get to the point where we forget that He's holy and that we can talk to Him just any old way we want to. And yet I believe the Scriptures hold up a very clear and very concise and precise way of coming into His presence, bowing before Him, acknowledging Him, and responding to Him. And I think that... Uh, when people get to that point where they treat him like just an old friend, I think we miss all that. And uh, I don't personally think God responds to that. I don't, I don't think when we pray, if we come with the idea that he's just a good friend, uh, he's more than a good friend. He's a holy friend, but he's holy. And I think there's a thing of easily drifting off into this idea of, of a commonness about God. And there's nothing common about God. He's unique in every facet of his existence. And God's people need to come back to that when we come to the issue of drawing nigh to him. And um, it's interesting that James wrote it in the New Testament that uh, you draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The condition is that you meet him on his terms, not him meeting you on your terms. You know, calling him chummy names and treating him like just an old friend is not the way to draw nigh to him. But in the case with Moses in chapter 3 and Joshua in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua gives us some footing and foundational points. Next time we're together, that's what we'll look at. And I hope you'll get a grip on it, and I hope it'll enhance your worship of him. I hope that'll work. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We'll not sing, but I'll ask you to stand, if you would, as we close our service. Thank you for coming and being faithful this weekend, and I do hope that you'll meet with us in the Wednesday night services, and I hope that you'll be looking forward to the picnic on Saturday and to the services next Lord's Day. Do please be praying for Brother and Mrs. Stark, and pray for one another, and do what you can to invite some folks to the services next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so very much for this your day. And thank you for the privilege we have of coming into your presence and bearing our hearts and our burdens, our cares, and our concerns. I thank you so much for the great love we have in you, for the love that you express to us in giving your Son for us, though we're not worthy. And, Father, I do pray this evening that you might give us a, a right perspective of you and your holiness. And I pray that when we come to worship, as we come to this place and into this hall frequently, I pray that our worship would be acceptable on the basis of your standard that you've set for us. And, Father, it wouldn't become a common thing in the sense that we treat you commonly, but rather we would recognize who you are and how you're lifted up 
And I pray that our attitude toward your holiness would be one that would reflect on our lives and we would be different because we worship a God that's different. Bless, I pray, our folks and our guests as they go. Give them safety in getting home. Give them a good rest. Refresh them and give them a wonderful week. And, Father, I pray you'll bless our Wednesday night services as we reassemble here. And bless also, I pray, our services next Lord's Day. And bless the Starks as they travel in. Bless and give them a good rest on Friday night. Give them a great time at our church's picnic on Saturday. And then help Brother Stark to feel wonderful on Sunday that he can share with us your word. And I pray you'll use him mightily in the ministry here over the weekend. And do bless our people. Keep them healthy and well and safe. And may your grace abound to them and favor be shown to them for their faithfulness being here this day. Thank you.